I'm David Bank, and from Impact Alpha, this is an Institutional Shift podcast. And so there is an advantage in in SPAC land and an IPO and other mechanisms like staying private longer, but being able to access big, huge blocks of billion dollar size capital. And that is that many of these plays uh, are capital intensive and scale intensive. That's Dave Chen, CEO of Equilibrium Capital, who has been our guide through the institutional shift. Let's jump right into our conversation. Hi, Dave. Welcome. Hey, how are you? I'm great. It's spring. I think we last talked back in winter with our annual uh, predictions for for 2021. Since then, you've been, I don't know, fulfilling the predictions in some way. I just, I saw that uh, a month or so ago, um, you guys sold a biodigester that I think processes dairy cow shit, I think we can call it that. Um, into renewable natural gas, and you've been building these kind of facilities, and you sold one of them. Um, is that the first one you sold? It is the first one that we sold. Tell us and, how. Uh, tell us how this whole business works. Oh man, I got to tell you how how the world has changed. I, you know, when we started that portfolio of uh, we call it wastewater opportunity fund number one five six years ago, man, it took us almost a year in some cases to get. Uh, institutional limited partners uh, to really get comfortable with the fact that we were going to process manure and urine and create something of institutional value uh, at the end of it. Uh, I mean, literally, that was a year's worth of getting them comfortable, demonstrations, and, and, and the idea of wrapping your head around the fact that shit has value. And you're going to do a lot of this, and you're going to do this in repeated manner. Oh, man, I don't get it. And fast forward to today, and I got to tell you, it's been a hell of a first quarter of 2021. So many things have have happened. And our Three Mile Canyon exit was a great example of that. Uh, We did that facility, which manages the manure and urine from 40,000 head of dairy cattle. Uh, We did that project in conjunction with our partner, Three Mile Canyon Farms, which is a part of the massive Offit um, enterprises, and this is up in Oregon, up in Oregon, where where you are as well. Right, it's in the Boardman, uh, uh, Oregon area on the Columbia River Gorge. It's one of the most modern and largest dairies, and it's important to remember that when I use that phrase manure and urine, you should be thinking about really one major important thing, and that is methane. It is, uh, you can imagine these large, uh, in general, what most uh, stockyards and feedlots and dairies do is they create these massive lagoons uh, of, I don't know, effectively uh, this liquid sludge, uh, which is off-gassing methane right into the atmosphere. Methane being even more potent than carbon as a, as a greenhouse gas. 30 times more or more. And uh, California, uh, in their... Uh, uh, low carbon fuel standards uh, and their carbon protocols uh, looks at that because of the methane and because of the additionality as a huge, huge um, credit worthy, uh, uh, I call carbon credits and, and low carbon fuel standards credit worthy uh, uh, source of feedstock. So these dairies have become incredibly valuable and uh, we ended, ended up exiting uh 
uh, in Q1 to a partners group and their new found or newly invested in group Resilient. Uh, and uh, it was a very successful, uh, I think, transaction both for partners group and uh, for us. Well, so just so I understand it, so the dairy waste, let's just call it, gets processed into uh, renewable natural gas that gets fed into regular pipeline for use in, you know, your stove or your hot water heater or what, what have you, right? Exactly. And that uh, there's a couple of key words that you mentioned there. One is pipeline injected, which also means pipeline quality. Uh, and it also means that, that once that molecule that is considered to be um, high uh, uh, carbon intensity, well, technically low carbon intensity scoring, uh, that, that molecule carries a value to the state of California. The pipeline is what carries that then to the users. And in this case, uh, uh, and in the cases of most of our renewable natural gas, also known as RNG, uh, the off-taker and the buyer tend to be now, in today's world, uh, uh, gas utilities, so public utilities, and most importantly and most active, uh, the large oil and gas players that are now looking to make sure that they comply with California regulations. And so, in effect, they're buying as much dairy RNG as they can possibly get. RNG, RNG being renewable natural gas. So let's just be clear. You get paid for the natural gas that you sell to these utilities or these buyers. You get paid by the dairy farm for taking care of their waste, right? Correct. Um, or they're our partners. Or they're your partners. And then you get paid as you say, by the, in the California carbon markets for the carbon or the, the greenhouse gas credits that are generated by um, removing these um, greenhouse gases. That is correct. Um, so when somebody like Partners Group, now they're, you know, they're kind of at the, in the impact investing world and they've got various impact funds and, and, and as you said, um, uh, re, you know, sustainability goals, but are they buying this because you're a do-gooder in environmental terms, or are they buying this because it's got good cash flows? So I, I want to correct a couple of things you said. Partners Group uh, launched a sustainability fund actually through the Partners Group Foundation a couple of years ago, and I'm sure you reported on that. The fund that out of Partners Group that technically bought uh, Three Mile Canyon actually came out of their infrastructure fund. So it's their plain vanilla infrastructure fund. And what they're looking for is, and you'll see this theme now coming up over and over again, infrastructure funds, and especially, in fact, the oil and gas funds are now looking for a future and, and a high potential, high growth future. So partners groups uh, of infrastructure fund and then through their resilient investment uh, bought this primarily because this is a growth sector and it's got, I won't divulge the actual IRRs, but I would say that they're private equity class IRRs as opposed to infrastructure class IRRs. So just to be clear, that means these guys are out there looking for assets to buy that have attractive numbers. They don't, I don't know if they don't care, but they're comparing this against, as you said, standard issue oil and gas assets of various sorts, and they're deciding this is a better buy. I think that's true, although I don't think the Partners Group uh, uh, Infrastructure Fund was looking for oil and gas, but your hypothesis that they were looking for just solid investments is exactly right. Well, that's interesting. And that's sort of, we're seeing, seeing that as well in, the, in this crazy um, 
a frenzy in the SPAC market where folks have been out shopping, uh, not necessarily for you know sustainability assets, but are finding many, many of those deals turn out to be electric vehicles, charging networks, battery companies. Um, and then you've been involved with one around controlled environment or greenhouse um, agricultural production. Many of those SPAC deals turn out to be sustainability deals, even though some of the some of the buyers and investors weren't, you know, initially sustainability investors. Yeah, I, I think when we talk about SPACs, I think there's a I guess we should com- co- uh, just clarify special purpose acquisition companies. Correct. And and I think that for our listeners, it's important to remember first principles about SPACs. And, and, and why would you, as a SPAC sponsor, buy a company and, and, and effectively reverse merge that into the SPAC? Well, it's because you fundamentally believe that the company you're buying uh, through this vehicle is a high growth company. Because you're taking it into the public markets where the growth is going to be rewarded, but we in the share price. Exactly. And so there are two attributes I think you have to balance. Why is it that 30 some odd percent of the SPACs that have been uh, launched in the last, I'd say, 24 months all have a, uh, a sustainability or an ESG tilt to them? Well, I think it goes to two things. One is it's it's explicitly uh, saying that that those thematics, sustainability and ESG, are going to be growth sectors. You don't have to look much further than than Tesla versus um, uh, versus the uh, the traditional internal combustion car companies, and you don't have to look much further than the oil and gas versus the uh, renewable energy based companies to see the difference in how the markets themselves are perceiving and pricing those assets. And, and so why would 30% of the SPACs have a tilt on sustainability and ESG? Because they're viewed as growth industries versus quote unquote legacy. And I think the second thing that they're meeting is that they're, they're, they're betting that there are more investors that also want those kinds of assets. So not only is the underlying industry a growth opportunity, that there's a growth in the amount of money that wants to chase and be part of those deals. So they're viewing the fact that, that, that the pipes and the participants in the pipes are looking at uh, uh, the forward markets and the and the attractiveness of sustainability, and they're also betting that retail investors are also interested in this, and they're betting that the institutional investors post IPO are going to want to support these industries. So pipes again, private investment in public entities, I think is right, yep. and those are additional investments that come in alongside this SPAC when the merger occurs to provide the capital to the company. So basically a company goes public through a SPAC versus a traditional kind of IPO that people may be familiar with. And then these other investors come in, the company gets uh, generally a a, a pretty big infusion of of capital, as you said, that sets it up in in these high growth areas. And those are the kinds of companies um, that need a lot of capital. That's been a tough kind of sector in the, you know, private impact world to be able to finance these very capital intensive companies, like, for example, the greenhouse uh, controlled environment um, company you're involved with App Harvest that that went public through a SPAC uh, a few months ago. Yeah, I I just want to clean up a little bit of language and what you used, Dave, uh, David, Uh, you know, um, you're Dave, I'm David. I know, I know, know. I'm I'm Dave, (laughs) you're David. Um, uh, 
you said alongside. No, the pipe is actually into the entity. And, and, and what, it, what it does is it's the first institutional investors that are effectively voting with their wallets to support not only a certain price point for the, uh, the, uh, the de-SPAC'd deal, uh, but they're also making a forward commitment of X number, usually hundreds of millions of dollars to support that stock as it goes and converts into a full uh, S4 uh, converted uh, transaction when the company officially lists. That's number one. Number two, I, I think that one of the things that people miss all the time is that they focus on the spacking process. And, and frankly, that is a vehicle that, as you said, competes with the IPO. But the day after you're listed, the day after you ring the bell and the transaction is consummated, I think what people need to remember is you're a public company. And, and one of the things about being a public company in the traditional route to an IPO is that a company has about, usually it's a year to 18 months to get ready to go public. That means the staff, the CFO, the back office, the, the ability to think your way through all the strategies and uses of proceeds. The way the SPAC market works and the speed of the SPAC market it's not unusual that you've got four months from the time that a SPAC um, agrees to buy a company and take them effectively public. You got four months to actually become ready for being a public company. And I think that's being a public company is a, is a, is a, uh, can be a ugly treadmill and, and can be a, a set of demands uh, that many teams are not, uh, ready for or really understand. And I think that's part of the the, the cautionary comment about uh, the, the SPAC phenomenon is that many of the companies that are in fact uh, 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 really good solid companies, but nonetheless may not be ready to go public, we're going to, are going to go public in about a four month period. And, uh, and, you know, and, and, and like I said, the, public markets can be a very tough taskmaster. Well, that's what I was going to ask about. So for on the, the, the first point is, as you said, that the sustainability thesis has become, in a sense, the, the disruptive innovation thesis that folks are looking for, and therefore the electric vehicle and, and charging station, that whole sector, but, but others as well, have become uh, hot for SPACs. But by the same token, there has been, I think, in the last a uh, few weeks or months, a kind of, you know, pullback or, or, as you said, you know, caution from this extremely frothy kind of SPAC activity um, at the very beginning of the year. And I think people, you know, sort of throw around the word bubble and is it, is it, has it got overheated? What's your take on that? Yeah, you know, I, I think that a, a couple things. One is, uh, David, you, you, you lived through the, uh, the uh, 2000, 2001 tech bubble burst. And, and I think the, the, the lesson there to be learned is that the underlying uh, trend lines and the underlying momentums were not wrong. The pricing and the expectation and the number of companies that went public uh, may have been wrong, all right? So, so look at the things that we saw uh, that, 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 that I would say saw their way through that 2000, 2001 period, the smartphone, uh, which is more accurately the move towards uh, internet mobility, uh, the trend line towards e-commerce, 
uh, uh, I, mean, I mean, those are all super hot bubbles. Uh, My favorite example has always been like undersea uh, uh, cables and for fiber optics, which were massively overinvested. You know, w people think of the dot com bubble; it was really the um, the telecom bubble. But the but the but the upshot, as you said, is we got left with a whole ton of fiber optics circling the globe. So we grew into the expectation, and so you know, the next thing you know is. You've got mobility conquers the world. No one can go back. No one can even remember what it felt like not to have that. Uh, E-commerce, it's just a way of life. And the same thing with the, uh, the infrastructure that was invested in, as you pointed out, the great telecom burst. Well, it wasn't for naught. It was just that we had to grow into the shoes. I think that's what we're going to end up seeing in, in SPAC land here. And that is that you got to be able to have the wherewithal to look through the pricing and expectations through to the underlying, you know, momentum that's that's there. A bunch of EV vehicles are going to go public. Are they all going to make it? Probably not. I mean, how many industries, David, have you looked at? How many sectors have you looked at where, you know, at the end of the day, you end up with three, four players that sort of dominate it? Well, we're going to have six or seven companies go public. I mean, looking at the CEA area, um, controlled environment agriculture area, App Harvest clearly broke rank, came out as first mover. I fully expect that we now have uh, not only the announcement of Aero Farms uh, going DSPAC, but, but we're going to see another four or five that we know of that will DSPAC. Will the market be able to sustain five, six players all in the public markets, all in formational industries, all in high growth, and all remain winners? Probably not. So now, just when I got just when I got uh, the, my SPAC acronym down, you introduced you've introduced a nuance. What's a DSPAC? A DSPAC is the despacification. In other once words, the, the company. Once you're public, you've been despacked. No, no. When a SPAC buys a company, the company itself has been despacked. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> It makes me want to de-slap you, but <laughs> um, but I think your I think your point is right, which is that the the investment thesis that encourages investment in these new and arguably disruptive sectors will you know spawn a lot of uh, uh, fantasies about about going to the moon. Not all of which will prove out, but the sector will in fact, grow because now it's got access to capital and arguably cheaper access to capital than it had through whatever the previous mechanisms were. So that we now have capital, for example, for, 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 for controlled environment greenhouses, for, I imagine, bio uh, digesters as well. The kinds of things that, like I said, are big capital intensive investments that sometimes were shied away from when you know VCs and others just want to invest in a, in a software app. I think you also hit on one of the critical things, and that is, you know, there's magic points in the growth phase of a sector when he who has access to a capital structure and the capital itself stands a better chance of, of surviving and winning uh, than, than those that don't have access uh, to capital or aren't properly structured. And you have to remember that many of the things that are in the climate change, climate adaptation, climate resilience, 
and sustainability area, when you peel those apart, many of those are actually infrastructure. In other words, CapEx and facilities intensive uh, uh, applications or sectors. We, we tend to have been lulled into you know, 30 years of high-tech investing where almost all these companies are IP-based or uh, asset light or leverage existing infrastructure. And when we now start to talk about things like, hey, how about we suck out the carbon from the atmosphere? Well, the, the, the immediate question you have to ask is, wow, that's a cool technology. How many thousands or tens of thousands of those units have to be built around the world? The same thing is, you know, we, we tend to now take for granted that wind farms and solar farms are now ubiquitous across the landscape globally. Well, those are all infrastructure components where, you know, the size of those industries uh, in terms of the physical plant and the capital that's necessary to build those physical plants dwarves the intellectual property uh, 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 capital base. So, so we're seeing that happening left and right. And so there is an advantage in, in SPAC land and, and IPO and other mechanisms like staying private longer, but being able to access big, huge blocks of billion dollar size capital. And that is that many of these plays uh, are capital intensive and scale intensive. And you get, you know, even, even something as mundane as, hey, alt protein, well, you know, people use these hyperbolic terms like feeding billions of people this alt protein. Well, how many factories do you need around the world in order to be able to chug out, you know, alt protein? And, and so these are almost all of these are infrastructure uh, based uh, uh, industries. Well, and that was the that's basically the thesis of this whole institutional shift series that you and I have been narrating, which is that the moving those big pools of capital into these sectors is what's needed to drive the costs down so that we can deploy all this stuff at scale and make the dent in the problems at the at the level that's that's required to to meet the challenges. Um, you, you had another interesting argument I saw recently. You, and, you sat down with Sir Ronald Cohn, who you know is sort of legendary in British venture capital and has made his you know sort of late stage career in impact investing. And, and, and I think you talked about the, the evolution of, of, of impact uh, analogous, analogous to the evolution of, of risk accounting about you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago. Um, tell us what, what you and, and Ronnie were talking about. Yeah, sure. I, I did a, a discussion video with Sir Ronald Cohen uh, for the Kellogg chapter of Net Impact uh, earlier this week. Uh, and um, we got into, I think, one of the most fascinating topics uh, in, uh, in, in this area. And, and, it's, and it's largely, I think, I don't know, it's kind of wonky. Um, Ronald Cohen would say that, uh, and he makes the argument that um, the, the great innovations in finance over the last 50 years revolved around the discipline of risk. It's when uh, we began to really understand that risk uh, was the fundamental in an investment that actually drove the asset pricing and the asset valuation. And, and that there were different risk categories that, that then would set out different risk or uh, return uh, profiles. 
you know, this is the old adage, uh, high risk, high returns. Well, the discipline that took place in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s were a set of tools that helped, uh, I'll call it institutional investors and professional investors, start to understand this and translate risk into a set of pricing uh, and, and returns expectations. And, and if you look at it, that's been the, 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 the vast bulk of the conversation, of the discipline, of the tool sets, and the way that we run investments uh, for the last 50 years. Ronald is making actually a, a I'll call it a, a forecast, or he's setting the tone that over the course of the next maybe 50 years, uh, the next wave of innovation in finance and in asset pricing is going to be the notion of how much benefit and how much outcome did you generate in this asset uh, in the uh, societal benefit and environmental benefit? And is the notion, that, sorry to break in, but is the notion that if you can, if you can account for that, as, and he's got a whole schema for how do you account for that, that you can get paid for that or that that's going to affect the pricing in the same way that risk calculations affect the pricing? Yes. And, and he would say that that becomes the foundation of value and valuation uh, in that asset, whether it's a company or, in our case, uh, 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 a controlled environment, agriculture, greenhouse facility, or a renewable natural gas dairy facility. But let me take you back to, to your original example of this renewable natural gas dairy facility. And you said that the investors were going into it on a pure kind of commercial basis and that they weren't actually calculating the impact. They just wanted a good cash flow. That is true, but look at where the cash flows are coming from. The cash flows are coming from, in fact, outsized benefits to the environment, outsized benefits to the farmer, outsized benefits to uh, uh, the environment and the pricing of those benefits. So let's take a look at what, what's really transpired in the RNG field. Look at who the biggest buyers of uh, dairy RNG, both at the credits as well as the assets are. They're now the oil companies. And what they're doing is they're now pivoting. Many of them are pivoting their strategy. You know, Shell has been probably the most proactive in calling themselves now an energy company, not a oil company. And I think those, those distinctions are actually incredibly important. So, so they're valuing the RNG for what it can do for the environment. And frankly, it's also because the regulators have de facto priced it. All right. And the market is now recognizing that that pricing is probably some, you know, reflection of, of a rational change that has to take place. So the very value is coming from its environmental outcomes. So policy signals that reflect these values that then drive either demand or, or mandate uh, ma mandated um, acquisitions in, in some sense. And so therefore the social benefits get get reflected eventually in the pricing because the the policy and the rest of the context s supports that. And you're saying that's that's coming. And if you can account for it and know where it's coming from and know where the sources of those values are, you can get ahead of those markets and get in before the valuations go crazy, like as, as you're saying, in, in some of the in some of these frothy markets. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's exactly right. And, and I think that that um, you'd be shocked at how few people, even investment professionals, have actually looked at the charts of the last three years uh, uh, for the oil and gas industry. And, and 
they themselves, even though we're all in the money investment area, are shocked to see the charts and, and the fact that the oil and gas industry has been cut by two-thirds of value. Indeed, indeed. We, 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 we've, we've been watching that play out um, with, with, with write-downs, with uh, cuts in the CapEx expenditures, with a whole shift going on where they become valued uh, basically as cash cows as they wind down <laughs> oil and gas. And as you say, sometimes maybe get into to affiliated fields like, um, you know, turn all the gas stations into EV charging stations, I suppose. Well, you know, and, and, and now look at the, the other industries that we are, quote-unquote, dependent upon. Uh, but which have to convert to a more sustainable form of that. You know, in, in, our, in our December podcast, you and I talked about one of the, the, the corporate strategy. Uh, I, I coined the, the, the name of, of, of there'll be a number of corporate strategies in this transition. One is the, the, the creosote bush. The other one is original sin, all right? Um, we, we are dependent on certain industries. Uh, we have been extractive, but now that we actually are still dependent upon many of those industries, what are we going to do to correct the original sin, right? You, you, you bulldozed a bunch of rainforest to do palm oil. Well, you did it. And you did it at a scale of literally hundreds of thousands of, of, of acres across the uh, equator. Well, that's original sin. Now what are you going to do to fix the problem? You can't just say that these are bad industries and we're going to stop. You know, that we're now dependent upon much of the outcomes of that and mining and rubber plantations and things like that. So, so what are we going to do to correct the, the original sin? One of the other strategies that, that, that corporations are going to have to deal with, and we coined the phrase, the creosote bush. Well, you know, look at how many oil companies are addicted to the uh, cash flows of oil. Now they got to go find themselves a future. Well, how are you going to cut yourself off from the dependency of this rich gross margin and this very well understood business model for 100 years to go find yourself a future? I'm reminded of the, the, the famous quote from Stort Brand, the, who folks m mostly know as the, as the originator of the Whole Earth Catalog that said, we are as gods, we might as well get good at it. And not, and not everyone's going to be good at it. And yeah. uh, I'll, I'll make a prediction that in the next, I don't know, three years, one of the major oil giants will do the Philip Morris uh, Atria thing, which is uh, basically have uh, uh, cut in half the, uh, the stock. And one version will be the old oil company. And the other one will be the new energy company. The high growth uh, energy company of the future based on all renewables and, and they'll rebrand themselves and, I don't know, change their logo like people thought uh, Volkswagen was going to become Volkswagen. It turned out to be an April Fool's joke, but uh, yeah. maybe not such a joke. Well, Dave, we'll, we'll, we'll revisit all the predictions, of course, um, for next year, but you've got the rest of this year. So we're looking forward to catching up with you later on. And, and thanks again for, for your insights um, on the Institutional Shift podcast. We're working hard. Thank you. That's going to do it for this Institutional Shift podcast. You can read more about Dave, Equilibrium, and the Institutional Shift at impactalpha.com. Subscribers receive full access to Impact Alpha content, including deal flow, job postings, and members-only Agent of Impact calls. And if you're on Clubhouse, keep your eye out for our Impact and ESG conversations there. Thanks again to Dave Chen and to our producer, Isaac Silk. 
I'm David Bank, editor and CEO of Impact Alpha. Until next time, take care.